Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name's Brand. And on this episode, we're discussing SST-155, the Sonic Youth Master Dick EP. We've touched on this era of the band in uh, a previous episode, the sister album, SST-134. But now we're going to dig into this EP specifically, and we've got a special guest, Brent. Yeah, Wharton Tears is our guest. And that's really cool. I mean, Wart, we've talked a lot about, arguably, you know, the West Coast scene and mm-hmm. the recording and production out West. But now we're going to get a little East Coast on the show here, mm-hmm. specifically with Wharton. And it's a real treat to hear from him specifically about all the bands that he's worked with, um, his approach to recording them. So very cool to get into that. Yeah, man. Uh, Do you have any spiels for the people before we get going? Of course I do. All right, man. Go for it. Ryan, this is is a a spiel directly for you because you're a mega fan. I watched Alex Winter's Zappa documentary today. Right on. Any good? It's awesome, man. Uh, I bet. Frank Zappa documented everything, and Alex had unprecedented access to his archives. It's one, it's one of the best artist documentaries I've seen in a really long time. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be my Christmas break treat to myself for sure. Yeah. I can't wait. Yeah. And there's a accompanying soundtrack with a bunch of unreleased tunes that are coming out as well. I'm pumped for that. Yeah, you're going to love it, man. Oh, I know. Yeah. Okay, Ryan, I have the Z section of my get this shit off my phone segment. Zoinks? Yeah. Are you for sure? You've you've got the Z section right on. Yep. Hey, I wanted to notice. Oh, I I wanted to mention too. Last episode was X and Y, and you actually had some Neil Young. So, I'm very happy to see you adhering to proper alphabet alphabetization requirements when you're dealing with your music collection brand. So, well done, my friend. Well, I had to squeeze that one in there. You, well, you're gonna like this one then, Ryan, because I'm doing something a little special for this one so bear with me i have some other zed stuff but before i get to that i did 10 from zorn i'm calling it i'm not saying these are the best john zorn records because he's got like 400 releases Uh, i'm just recommending 10 that i dig and they're in no particular order cool okay he's one of those henry kaiser fred frith type of dudes Okay, Ryan, Naked City. Of course. Yeah. Grand Guigno, 1992. This is the second Naked City record, originally released on the Avant label. The band has some of his core collaborators, Bill Frizzle on guitar, Fred Frith on bass, uh, Japanese vocalist Yamatsuka Ai, best known as a member of Boredoms, is the primary vocalist. Uh, if you get the remastered Zadok version, Mike Patton does some vocals. If you're looking for sheer musical insanity, look no further. It makes Phantomas sound tame by comparison. It's arguably, though, the most accessible Naked City record, though, wouldn't you say? Yeah, probably. The self-titled one? Uh, yeah. Okay, John Zorn, Salem, 1692, came out in 2018. The second release by his instrumental quartet, Insurrection, which is Trevor Dunn on bass from Melvin's Phantomas and a zillion other bands. 
Julian Lange and Matt Hollenberg on guitars. Great jazz record ranging from moody pieces to total shred fests. Number eight, John Zorn, 49, Acts of Unspeakable unspeakable Depravity in the Abominable Life and Times of Gilles de Rays, 2016. This is the ensemble he calls Simulcrum, and John, John Zorn acts as composer, arranger, and conductor. It's mathy jazz metal, metal with Matt Hollenberg on guitar, John Medeski on organ, and Kenny Grahowski on drums. There's some killer stuff by this group, including two records from this year, Baphomet and Beyond Good and Evil, a live record. Uh, number seven, Moonchild, Songs Without Words from 2006. This is the first of seven albums he's done with the Moonchild Trio. Trevor Dunn and Mike Patton reunited, of course, for Mr. Bungle in this project. And Joey Barron, who's played on tons of Zorn records, including most of the Naked City stuff. If you're into the typical Mike Patton projects, uh, if there is such a thing, then you should check this out for sure. John Zorn and Artur Yinou, Floros, Book of Angels, Volume 29. From the, This is from the 32-volume Masada Book 2 series. This one is done with French trio Artur Yinou, and it's jazz rock fusion with some ripping guitar playing. They also have a couple standalone records on Sadik that are worth tracking down for sure. John Zorn, Psychomagia, 2014. This is again with uh, a twin guitar-based quartet they call a Braxis, more like an avant-garde instrumental prog rock band. Number four, John Zorn, Nosferatu from 2012. It's Zorn on piano and alto sax, Bill Laswell on bass, and he also mixed it, plus some of his other frequent collaborators. It goes in and out of ambient, creepy soundscapes, and it's got a bit of Laswell dub on it, and a few free jazz skronk fests. Uh, and it was done oh, for a yeah. Polish stage production of Nosferatu. You like skronk fests, Ryan? Is that why you said, oh man? Yeah, I'm like, give me the skronk. <laughs> okay, you got it. <laughs> <laughs> Painkiller. Guts of a Virgin, oh, yeah. 1991, uh, on a label primarily known for death metal, Earache. This is the first of several Painkiller albums, and it features Zorn on sax, Laswell on bass, and Mick Harris of Napalm Death on drums. It's pretty insane stuff. Free jazz with blast beats. Number two, John Zorn, Book of Angels, Volume 7, Osmodeus. This is one he did with guitarist Mark Rabot, who is a total shredder. If you like, say, the Masthetics records, check this out. Mark Rabot also plays on an awesome Moonchild record called Ipsissimus. Mark is also on a ton of excellent later era Tom Waits records, too. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. Number one is Electric Masada at the Mountains of Madness. This is actually probably my favorite Zorn project. Double live album recorded on tour in 2004. Kick-Ass Jazz Fusion with two drummers, Trevor Dunn on bass, Zorn on alto sax, Mark Rabot on guitar. If you groove to 70s fusion like Return to Forever or Mahavishnu, uh, this is for you. Nice. Can I give you an 11th, Zorn? Please. Since, since we're, I think we're in December in this episode, by the time it comes out, don't forget about John Zorn's A Dreamer's Christmas right. album. <laughs> I hate Christmas music, 
but I do listen to this John Zorn record, A hey. Dreamer's Christmas, with Mike Patton, of course. Of course. Hey, did you see that uh, Lanigan has a Christmas album coming out? Yeah. Dark Mark? <laughs> yeah, I saw it. <laughs> that might be okay. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, for how I feel about the holiday season, Lanigan might fit the bill. He might. Okay, just a few more from the Z section here, Ryan. Zolar X, Timeless. This is the L.A. glam band that spoke their own created alien language and dressed like space aliens. This was a collection of demos released in 1982, but uh, kind of rescued and reissued by superfan Jello Biafra and released on Alternative Tentacles in 2004, following which the band reunited and released more great records. There is apparently a documentary that's been made about them, which has unfortunately never been released. I'd sure love to see that. Zen Gorilla, Shadows of the Sun, 2001 Sub Pop. Nice. Love all of their records. If you dig MC5 Stooges, Mud Honey, pick up some Zen Gorilla. You can't lose. You turned me on to them, actually. Yeah. Uh, here's one that's on the tree, Ryan. Zune, Z U N, Burial Sunrise, Psych Rock album released in 2016. It's the Yawning Man sort of quartet, Fatso Jetson crew, and a few guests, including Robbie Krieger of The Doors who plays sitar on it. Sarah Timms from this band Idols of Gemini does some vocals, and John Garcia of Caius does some vocals. Here's one that's not even a branch on the SS tree, Ryan. This is like the trunk of the tree. I did the Zoog's, <laughs> Zoog's Rift Warzone music for obnoxious yuppie scum record. Nice. Yeah. Now that is Christmas music. Yeah. It's all instro, but still classic Zoog's. Love it. Not on SST, so we won't be, won't be covering that one, unfortunately. Here's a band I'm curious if you're into, Ryan. Zenai Jiva. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 10,000 Light Years is the one I did. 2001 on Neurot, their final studio record, although apparently they're still an active band to some degree. Amazing, punishing Japanese noise rock. The Zigzag Power Trio, Woodstock Sessions 2018, Jazz Rock uh, Power Trio, Will Calhoun from Living Color on drums, Vernon Reed, also from Living Color on guitar, and Melvin Gibbs, most relevant to this podcast uh, because of his time in the Rollins Band on bass. Cool. Zombie. I did the Zombie Anthology. People mistake this group for like a goblin clone, or probably now would say they sound like, you know, the Stranger Things soundtrack or whatever. But they're so much more than that. They're synth-driven, inventive prog with awesome drumming. This album is their first tape and their first single. I like some of the more recent stuff better, like Shapeshift, their previous record, and and their new one, 2020, is really great. Zombie. Zeke kicked in the teeth. Still my go-to Zeke record. There was a time when I was obsessed with this band, around the time this record came out, actually, in 1998. I haven't listened to them in a long time, and I rocked so hard to this record this week. (laughs) Zodiac Mind Warp, One More Knife, 1994. Grebo Rock from London. I was recently recently listening to this podcast called The C86 Show that had an interview with guitarist Cobalt Stargazer, and they mentioned this record, which I actually hadn't heard. I just know the most famous one, Tattooed Beat Messiah, which I love. So... I realized I need more Zodiac in my life. And finally, Ryan, to get some Zappa in there, I didn't do Frank, but I did Dweez. I did his 
Live in the Moment 2 record, which is also oh, yeah. It's apparently his homage to his dad's Shut Up and Play Your Guitar album, and it's pretty awesome. What, oh, yeah. What, Ryan, is the status of the Zappa Plays Zappa project right now? Oh, he can't he can't perform on like under the name of Zappa plays Zappa. It has to be just Dweezil Zappa. Because hmm. uh, Zappa plays Zappa apparently suggests that it's authorized by the family trust and Amit and uh, I think it's Moon Unit. <laughs> they uh, they basically took over. And uh, they're still in the feud, as far as I understand it. But the Dweez actually recently launched a brand new website and podcast and everything. And, I mean, Amit and, and that side of the family, they can, they can pump out the, uh, the product and the archives. But Dweez is the one who's actually playing the music, man. And you yeah. cannot deny that. Yeah. None of his family, other than Gail, get interviewed in this in this documentary. Hmm. Interesting. Like they're all in it in home movies, but none of them. Know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's weird. Uh, and unfortunate. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I saw the last time I saw the Dweez, it was not a Zappa plays Zappa showcase. It was a Dweezil Zappa plays music from blah. You know, I think it was the hot rats. Right. tour that he did it was called dweezil zappa plays hot rats that that record was actually dedicated to him in the liner notes by frank and it was i can't remember what it was like the 40th anniversary of hot rats and he played it in its entirety and the dweez and all of his players are absolutely untouchable every time you see them live yeah. and i cannot say the same for Ahmet zappa <laughs> yeah all right, Ryan, what do you have for spielage? Okay, man, I, I'm all over the place on this one, but um, I, for some reason, encountered a number of things worth mentioning, and uh, hopefully you dig it. Hopefully some of the people dig it. First, a book, and you know what that means. Literature. Literature. So Hank Rollins has got his new Fanatic Volume 2 book out on 213.61 Press, I'm still pumped to get this one, even though volume one didn't blow my mind. I'm hoping actually that volume two covers a lot of stuff that he that Henry doesn't usually cover. So it'll have a bunch of new stuff for him to talk about. That's what I'm hoping for. Um, but I'll buy every Henry Rollins book. It doesn't matter. The next one is a blog. I think this might be my first blog post, but it's on the tree. It's on the tree. There's a blog called There's Something Hard in There. And in the most recent blog, it's a lengthy interview with Joe Nolte from The Last. Mm. And a, a deep dive into what caused them to unearth the Look Again record. It's a great read. You should check out the There's Something Hard in There blog. Uh, the next is a podcast shout out, Brant. Nice. Have you ever heard of the have you ever heard of the music district? Ever heard of that one? Mm, sounds like something I've heard of, but I don't know if I've listened to it. Yeah. They just released a seven part podcast on the blasting room. Oh. And and uh the first episode 
has none other than Bill Stevenson on it. And then the remaining episodes have got others who have been deeply involved in the blasting room, but it's a great history lesson, a deep dive into that studio, oh. how, how it began. I mean, we all kind of know that, that the descendants and all took the money from their major label and built the blasting room, but how did it take off and, and how did they end up uh, building this reputation as like an absolutely amazing um, indie, but also major label like uh, punk rock and not just punk rock recording studio. And they're only like 15, 20 minutes a piece. So you can get through all seven kind of in short bursts. I would recommend checking out that the music district. Hey, what's that Dweezil Zappa podcast about? Does he interview people or what is it? I haven't looked at it. I know, I, I think he interviews people. I think he talks about his uh, his recording gear. Like it's just, it's a deep dive into everything Dweezil, which would be people that he plays with. Um, obviously touching on Frank, but Dweezil's a pretty heavy gearhead too. And yeah. so I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if he gets into a lot of his gear and his recording. He's always recording too. You talked about volume two or whatever. He has like four or five of those volumes and he's, he still puts out a record every five years or so. Okay. I got two more. The next one is a Gary Lee Connor update, Brant. It's on the tree. Wicked. Gary Lee has got a new record that you can pre-order called Revelations in Fuzz. So pumped to see this, actually, because I've dug the last two um, that have come out in uh, the last year or so. Around the time when we had Gary Lee on the pod as well, um, there was a couple that we were talking about then. This is coming out on that Italian label, Vince Bus Eruptum, again, uh, which is the same label that also put out that great lords band brand do you remember that lords band lords lords of bastard oh that band yeah yeah they're cool you yeah got that lords record for Bast free yeah man their record cuddles is also good to check out but gary lee's got a new record out on vince bus erupting called revelations in fuzz very cool and finally brant um i wanted to mention this documentary that i relocated after many many years now this documentary was that we used to have this thing in canada on much music called the new music do you remember that I show sure on much yep. music i do yeah so the, the new music was was really um a segment on much music which is like the canadian mtv where they would really look at some left field type of types of music stuff that was not middle of the road not not mainstream and it was real like music journalism right and they they used to have you know sometimes they'd go to festivals concerts interview bands uh do a focus on a scene and one one episode way way back and this is way back um they played this documentary during the new music you know one of the vjs introduced it you know and tonight on the new music blah, 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 this documentary called Out of the Loop. Mm. It's a documentary from 1997 on the Chicago scene. And it talks about like touch and go. There's tons of footage and interviews with Jesus Lizard, Steve Albini. It goes on and on. Also, Wax Tracks. There's a lot of commentary about 
you know, in the mid to late 90s, the 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 ongoing debate of, you know, whether you're going to stick with an indie or whether you're going to jump to a major, all that kind of stuff. It is out for free on YouTube right now. All of it out of the loop. It's a great period piece. And if you like industrial American indie underground noise rock it, punk, anything like that. It's awesome to check out. I'm so glad I found it again. Hmm. Cool, man. Yeah, I'm. I don't know if this was on the new music or not, but when I was younger, I, I mean, we didn't have much music, but I was at a, a relative's house who did, and I, by chance, recorded on VHS a much music documentary called Punk Seven Six Seven Nine. Oh yeah, for sure. That's on that that's on YouTube as well. I watched that a zillion times. And it's got a bunch oh, of sure. the Canadian stuff on it too. Like DOA oh, yeah. and the Young Canadians. It's the first place I saw some of that stuff. Black Flags on it. Yeah. So check out check out both of those then. Yeah. For that matter. That'd be great. Much music used to have some cool stuff. I mean, it's not even a music station anymore. Do you remember when Weird Al would take over Much Music and it would be Al TV for a weekend or whatever? <laughs> totally, man. Yeah. I mean, I used to think Weird Al was Canadian. And and he was like, he's not from Canada, but he's a national treasure here for sure. And I used to love it when he would take uh, over Much Music and he would do those fake interviews with people. That was, <laughs> he would fake interview, like he would obviously do fake questions and then splice it with real interviews like with Prince or Madonna and stuff. It was so hilarious. Have you ever heard his tribute to Frank Zappa? Uh, no, what's that one? He's got a song that's a Frank Zappa tribute. I only have like his first first four or five records. Mm. I only go up to Even Worse. Is it past Even Worse? Oh yeah, yeah. You need to check that out, man. It's... Okay, what re what record is I, that? I don't know what records it's off of and I don't recall the name of the song but I bet if you google google it you'll find it and you'll love it because it's got so many references to Frank Zappa he's a super oh, yeah. big Zappa fan hey oh uh, yeah no yeah. doubt about it uh, I'm all over that yeah. for sure you'll, too. You'll now I know it. what I'm doing tonight yeah you'll love it man <laughs> <laughs> all right man well that's a lot to digest and get into over the next week before the next show. So that's awesome. Yeah. Um, are you ready to get into this EP? Yeah. History lesson, part one. All right, Brant. So like I mentioned at the outset, we kind of touched on this tune in our Sonic Youth sister SST-134 episode. This was a bonus track on that CD. We'll get into all that later on. We've got Wharton Tears on the show which is also really cool. Um, where do you want to go with this by way of intro to this uh, EP or the interview? I'm going to give you a little history lesson here, and then we'll kick it okay. over to Wharton. Right on. Okay, so this is a 12-inch EP released on November 4th, 1987 on SST, and then on January 22nd in 1988 in the UK on Blast First. The band, of course, at this time was Lee Ronaldo, Steve Shelley, Thurston Moore, and Kim Gordon. Uh, the song Master Dick is on the SST, Blast First, and later the DGC versions of the sister CD, but that's a different version. That version has Steve playing live drums instead of the beatbox version that... Um, and it's a totally different mix as well that we're hearing on this EP. 
Uh, this EP has been released in a number of editions. It's available as a download or a CD on their Bandcamp page right now. And there's some updated liner notes in that CD by Lee Ronaldo. I'll read them to you here. He says, A slight hiccup in our production. This is the infamous EP that Blast First label head Paul Smith begged us not to release. <laughs> it has long been reviled or misunderstood by many. The song itself, Master Dick, possibly a play on words related to Master Disc, where we mastered yep. our albums in those days, first saw Light of Day in a different version as a bonus track on the Sister CD when it came out. That was the non-beatbox version, meaning Steve was playing the drums. The version on the, this EP has full beatbox in effect. Jay Mascus even puts in an appearance on lead guitar. In essence, although this track was recorded during and associated with the Sister Era, it actually looked ahead to the making of the Chicone Youth Whitey album about 18 months later. It was the first appearance by the Royal Tough Titty, who at one point even declares, We're Chicone! Following Beat on the Brat, Side 2 journeys through a sonic wonderland of 14 selections, or is it 15? 13? Beginning with an excerpt from a live Radio Swiss broadcast as we goofed around with Beatles and George Benson covers, you kind of had to be there, with a bunch of other soundscapes, rehearsal takes, and sound effects, including one of my favorite tracks from this period, Our Backyard. I'm not kidding. We were playing with scope, expanding and contracting in new and different ways. In any case, love it or hate it, we went ahead and released it over Paul's objections and, defying predictions, it didn't derail our career. The Peter Anderson, fo <laughs> <laughs> the Peter Anderson photos with the spray paint spiral behind became emblematic of this period and were widely yep. seen at the time. I pulled some stuff, Ryan, from the many great Sonic Youth books out there, like Confusion is Sex by Alec Fogue, Psychic Confusion book by Son uh, Stevie Chick. Didn't really find anything in Kim Gordon's book about this. Uh, it was inspired by late 80s New York City hip-hop. Started at the end of the sister sessions at Sear Sound in New York City with Bill Titus Engineering. Steve was playing drums along with loops. Lee Ronaldo was playing into his headphones of specifically chosen fragments of Kiss songs. Afterwards, Lee and Thurston cut these loops together to form the backing track, and Thurston, in his alter ego, the Royal Tough Titty, rapped over top. He'd already done this once before on the A-side of the Chicone Youth single a year prior on the song Tough Titty Rap. And we'll talk a bit more about this track when we go through the, the songs. In The Confusion Is Next book, Alec calls the B-side a piecemeal tour diary, a Swiss radio performance, a jam done in rehearsal dubbed onto a cassette tape. And then in Stevie Chick's awesome Psychic Confusion book, he interviews Paul Smith of Blast First uh, for the book, who, as Lee mentioned, was dead set against releasing this EP. He says in the book, uh, this is uh, Paul Smith, it doesn't stand up as their brightest musical moment. I encouraged the wackiness that was Chicone Youth. It had a concept to it, but the B-side to Master Dick was a fucking mess. I was disappointed in them, but they wanted to put it out. Uh, the Ramon song, Beat on the Brat, was recorded by Wharton Tears at his fun city, city studios in New York, a.k.a. Wharton's Palace of Confusion, as it's credited on this release. 
And before we get to Wharton, Ryan, I'll just give people a, a brief primer on, on him. Wharton Tears is an audio engineer, producer, and musician, primarily as a drummer. Uh, he was around New York in the music scene at the start of the No Wave movement and played in bands and shared stages with and recorded many of the artists from that scene. He was the drummer in Glenn Bronca's group Theoretical Girls, a definite forebearer to Sonic Youth. He's played in a bunch of other projects, which you'll hear all about in the interview. He's engineered tons of great records, including Sonic Youth's Confusion is Sex, Dos Domin's first EP, uh, their Ju Jupiter Eye record, and the one we haven't gotten to yet, Triskaidekaphobia. Uh, he did Lee Ronaldo's From Here to Infinity, Side 2 of You're Living All Over Me. He's also done stuff with Swans, Cop Shoot Cop, Pussy Galore, Of Cabbages and Kings, a band we just recently mentioned, Anti-Tam, Helmet, Railroad Jerk, Teenage Fan Club, Shudder to Think, the list goes on. You can check him out on his website, wartontears.com, and his Bandcamp page has a bunch of his music on it. Should we throw it over to Wharton? Let's do that. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Wharton Tears. Wharton, thanks for being on the show. Thank you. All right, I'm wondering if you can take me back, Wharton, to growing up in Philadelphia. Were you playing music growing up? Um, yes, I started playing music in uh, high school. Started a band with a bunch of classmates and uh, played at a bunch of the uh, high school events. Mm -hmm. Started out as a lead singer. <laughs> because I really didn't play any instruments at the time, and then kind of took over drums because I figured I could play better than the drummer we had. So Okay. What kind of band was it? Uh, we were mostly a cover band. Um, lots of Rolling Stones and uh, Beach Boys. The lead guitarist did write some originals as the, as the band uh, grew up a bit. But I, I'd say we were primarily a cover band. What was the band called? Uh, the Great Expectations. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then why New York City? What drew you to, to New York? Well, um, New York City was basically because the, um, the girl I was going out with at the time, who um, became my first wife, uh, was into acting. Mm -hmm. And she said, uh, you know, I want to go to NYU uh, for the last a couple of years of school and, and pursue acting. So I said, well, that sounds, sounds great. Um, you know, at the time I was thinking about, uh, just basically being a writer. So, um, I figured why not New York city? It sounds like a good place to okay. <laughs> hang out and write. You wanted to be a journalist? Um, no, I, I was going to write uh, the Great American Novel. Okay. Which, of course, I still have, <laughs> I haven't gotten to it yet. <laughs> okay, so you go to New York. How did you fall in with the, you know, with the local music scene? How did that happen? Well, um, after I was there for a few months, I kind of missed playing music, and uh, also uh, talked to a bunch of writers up there who were kind of a little bit discouraging, I guess, in terms of uh, making any money doing writing. And I figured, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still young. I, I can write later on. And I should play music now. Mm -hmm. So I started going out to audition with um, various bands. And uh, that's kind of what drew me into the music scene. 
as a drummer. As a drummer, yeah. yes. I was learning to play guitar in, in New York when I was in, in the apartment there, and thankfully uh, I could do it when no one looks around. Right. Okay, so this would have been, you know, mid-70s, 77-ish maybe? 76, I think, is yeah, when you moved there? 76 is when I moved to New York. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that would, that would be the, the end of 76 is when I really started going out to uh, audition with different bands. So when does theoretical girls get get started, or were they already started well, and then you joined? Yeah, they they had already start, started. Um, they were working with a drummer from another band who had sort of said that they were friends with and said, "Well, I'll play for you until you find someone," you know. And uh, so they had already played, uh, you know, a little bit, I guess, and. Uh, they put an ad in the uh, Village Voice looking for a drummer, and uh, it seemed like a cool ad, so I went and uh, got into the band. <laughs> okay. And the history of, or the lifespan of that band was fairly short. I think I read somewhere that you only played about 20 shows total. Yeah, that that sounds right. Yeah. That sounds about right. Um, it, was, it was a pretty volatile situation um, between the, the two main writers for the band, which would have been uh, Glenn Bracca and Jeffrey Lone. So the, there was always a, a certain amount of animosity, although it was also a shared musical experience. So I, I, I attribute that to the, to the short-lived nature of the band. Right. Did make it overseas, though, I believe. Yes, we did. We played uh, several of our shows in Europe. Um, it was actually my first trip out of the country. We went to... Uh, France and played uh, in Paris at a few different shows and uh, then returned to New York. Right. Any standout shows that you played maybe with some of the the bands or artists that started, you know, becoming known as the no wave scene? Was that happening yet? Well, it, it was definitely happening. And um, I'd say we played more than a few um, New York shows with, with some or a bunch of those bands. The one that stands out to me, I guess, was the X Magazine Benefit, where um, the Contortions and uh, DNA and Theoretical Girls all played a part in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was a series of bands uh, at Artist Space, which was a uh, downtown kind of, you know, they, they displayed a lot of art and then they did music. So uh, a bunch of the bands played there, uh, Lydia Lunch and uh, Teenage Jesus, uh, Mars, DNA. Now, after that, is that when you started your band called A Band? Um, a Band. A Band. <laughs> because it, it got shortened from, from Rent-A-Band. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> but uh, we, we, we like the fact that A always put us at the beginning of the... Uh, the album rack. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I would say it was simultaneous. Um, at one point in, in between 77 and 79, I guess I, I was playing with about six different people. And Theoretical Girls was, was technically still in existence. I, I, I'm not sure exactly when our last show was. I think we played at Max's Kansas City in 79 at some point. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was looking for an outlet to, to uh, play some songs that I was writing at the time. And uh, 
I got a band together with Paul McMahon, and basically we said, well, you can write half the songs and I'll write half the songs. Right. We did a lot of shows during that period. With that group? Yes. Yeah. Any touring? Um, no, no leaving uh, New York City, but uh, we did do a single and um, mm-hmm. played quite a few New York shows. And for people who haven't heard it, what, what did a band's a band sound like? Um, well, it was kind of a, a, an interesting mix because Paul Paul McMahon wrote what I would call novelty songs. Okay. <laughs> um, very artistic, but you know, kind of novelty songs, as it were. And um, I was probably more in the um, punk rock, no wave kind of mode of uh, just writing fast and loud mm-hmm. uh, material for the most part. The, the single we put out pretty much defines it. I think that the two sides are pretty different. Uh, Lowly Worm was Paul's song on side one, and I wrote a song called No Love on side two that um, was later uh, used in the in the Blank City documentary of that period. Oh, cool. Okay, so that band breaks up or whatever happened, morphs into possibly Glorious Strangers. Yes, well, that was, uh, I guess a band, what happened was that basically Paul and I realized that we were writing two very different kind of things, and it, it, it was kind of a, a conflict as to which way the band should go. Um, so in the end, we just kind of just let it uh, go. And uh, so Glorious Strangers was kind of my next uh, songwriting phase, which was primarily always uh, me and my wife at the time. She did the singing, and I, I played most of the instruments. And then we filled the band out a few different times with different people, but I think we never really found that uh, magic combination of things that made it work live, you know? The, the album we put out is, was very representative of what, of what we were doing at that time. It was kind of a, an avant-pop kind of sound. Did you work on the engineering of that record? Oh, yes. Um, I, I recorded most of my parts on a four-track uh, Kiak machine. Mm. Okay. And uh, a friend of mine was working at a uh, commercial studio in, in Midtown, and he said, uh, well, if you want to come up after hours and transfer the tracks over and add to them, that sounds like a fun project. Mm-hmm. And that's how that uh, record basically came about, a few, few nights in a, in a commercial studio in Midtown. And we just transferred the four tracks over, and then I would add live drums, and they had a Mellotron there, which was a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> so I <laughs> added a lot of background voices to the uh, material. By this point, are you starting to get interested in engineering? Well, I've always been kind of interested in engineering, and in fact, a lot of the, even the T-Girls stuff that, that surfaced uh, was stuff I recorded in the the rehearsal space because I had a, I had a small tape recorder and my father used to, to, to uh, sell tape recorders wholesale. So I, I, I literally grew up with tape machines. So I was always able to run them. And uh, one thing kind of led to another, you know, um, I was a building superintendent on uh, 22nd street in, in Manhattan. And, uh, the basement wasn't being used, and the landlord said, "Well, if you if you want to use it, just go go ahead." Mm-hmm. So it kind of became a rehearsal space, and uh, 
I would always make tapes for people when we'd be playing down there and we'd get comments like, oh, this sounds better than the studio I went to uh, three months ago, you know? Right. So, you know, that got me thinking to go to, go to the next level with it. But I would say that uh, engineering and production were, were, were part of my fabric for a long time. Right. It sounds like it kind of just evolved into perhaps a studio down there, but one of the first credits that I see listed listed as Fun City Studios is uh, the Y Pants Beat It Down recording mm-hmm. from 1982. So what? Right. This was in the basement of that of that building. Um. No, I think I actually did that in another studio. Barbara Etz, who was in in the band, um, was going out with Glenn Bronca at the time. So I, I had known her for you know quite a while during the A band uh, No Wave days, and uh, I had seen White Pants a few times. And I said to Glenn, you know, you should you should let me make the record for them. And so they all basically agreed that, that would be a good good move. So that I guess is my first credit. You must have been a valuable commodity at that time. I mean, for that era, it was mostly like you say, you know, the bigger studios. Because of that, a lot of these scenes didn't get documented properly. Yes, uh, you know, and I understand that. And again, it was it was partly just luck. Um, that whole time corresponded with the first um, relatively inexpensive eight um, track tape machines. So when they came on the scene, instead of spending you know twenty thousand dollars on a tape machine, you could buy one for a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars. I don't exactly remember the price then, but and you know. You bought, bought tape and get a small mixer and, and you're in business. <laughs> right. Fast forward a bit and you are set up in your the basement of your building, which I believe is where you recorded the Sonic Youth Confusion is Sex record in 1983. Yes, that is, that is correct. So what kind of setup would that have been? That's the 8-track recorder? Yes, that was an 8-track uh, Tascam, uh, 38, and a small mixing board and... Uh, I remember when they were coming in for the session, I was I was uh, soldering up some mic cables so I would have enough mics to <laughs> do the whole band at once, you know? So when you see on Sonic Youth Records uh, credits to Wharton's Palace of Confusion, this is, they're talking about this basement boiler room. Yeah, they're talking about Fun City. But first, I didn't like the fact that, it, <laughs> that there was any fun involved, I guess. <laughs> For a while, he, he would call it No Fun Studio. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me about New York City at that time. You read a lot about, you know, pre-gentrification, about what the city was like. What was your neighborhood like? Well, 22nd Street was, was um, kind of an interesting neighborhood because it had a lot of, um, I would say, the older generation uh, ethnic people still there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I can remember that... Groups across the street used to play checkers and and uh, <laughs> bridge, you know, out on the stoop all day long. And so it, it was a very family-oriented kind of area. It wasn't very commercial ever. So that that was the neighborhood there. And then, of course, the East Village was was pretty much a war zone at that time. So a lot of downtown Manhattan had been emptied out, and you know, drug trade on the streets and gun battles at night 
you know, the, the, the city had, had had its big uh, exodus, I guess, of people that had money left and went to the suburbs. So um, what was left was a lot of abandoned buildings and, you know, certainly inexpensive rents, <laughs> which is, is almost hard to conceive of now. But yeah. um, that, that, was the, that was the scene then. I, I, I've told many uh, bands who, who used to say it to me, uh, well, how, how did you all got, you know, manage to get by in those days? And I said it was really pretty easy because no, no, nobody was paying, paying very high rent and you could have a part-time job and, and afford the rent and still have plenty of time to go hang out every night and right. play in bands, you know. Or paying rent at all. <laughs> I think there was probably, seems like there was some squatting maybe going on even back then. Yeah, there was, there was definitely squatting and, and all that going on at the same yeah. time, sure. Yeah. The Sonic Youth record, Confusion is Sex, it's kind of known for its raw sound. Is it something mm-hmm. you listen to? When's the last time you heard that record? Um, it's, I listened to it a few years back um, because I hadn't heard it for a few years. And for me, it's always kind of interesting when you when you do something like that because it, is it how, is it how you remembered it or is it different? You know, and what kind of struck me about that record was how no wave it was. Mm-hmm. You know, um, all, all the Sonic Youth guys, of course, individually and, and collectively would would hang out at a lot of those early shows with theoretical girls and everything else. And when I was recording the record, I didn't particularly i guess line those two things up but with with the distance um i think you can clearly see a lot of the no way of influences in that record going ahead a bit uh to some artists that are relevant to to our podcast specifically you started working with dos domin in 1986 yes what was that experience like there i believe were an incredibly loud band was it difficult to capture their sound and th- and again, when you started with them, was this still in that that basement studio? I believe that uh, we recorded some Domin things in Fun City, and and there were also some other studios involved. Mm-hmm. I guess Sonic Youth was probably the, the the bridge that got me to Das Domin in some sense that they had played shows together or something, um, and so they called me up about um, working with them and. I guess they were they were loud, but I mean, maybe not as loud as the Swans or right. <laughs> some of the some of the other bands that were more known for their volume. I was uh, kind of intrigued by the the, the collective. I think the, the way they all meshed together, um, especially the early version of the band, and um, I forget the drum the bass player's name. I think it was Phil. Phil uh, Leopold von Trapp, I believe, is his name. Or yes, <laughs> and you know he was one of those musicians that was maybe a little hard to figure out sometimes, but always came up with these things that were just kind of mind blowing. Yeah, you know, musically, and it, it to me it gave that band something very special that you know other bands didn't really have. So I guess that was kind of the draw to working with them. Speaking of incredibly loud bands, you also recorded one of the sides of Dinosaur Jr.'s You're Living All Over Me. Yes. And um, I would say that when I recorded that, they were loud, but not not what they became later on. In fact, uh, I have a 50-watt Marshall um, 
head that uh, Jay used in making that record. It was it was his. Mm-hmm. And uh, when the record was over, he he said, uh, I, I said, you know, I love the sound of that amp. He says, do you want to buy it? I said, well, what do you want to get rid of it for? He said, well, I need 100 watts. <laughs> <laughs> the 50 was was not quite loud enough. Right. So I would say that they, they were somewhat loud, but uh, maybe not as over the top as they became later on. Was volume ever an issue when you were recording down there as far as like the tenants? Um, aside from one tenant who, uh, just found me somewhat disagreeable at some point years later, um, no one really gave me any hard time about it. Um, you know, I, it wasn't a studio where I would, you know, go down there in the middle of the night with a loud sound and try and record. In fact, I, I turned Kim Deal down, uh, when she wanted to work with me because she said, you know, I just like recording at night. And I said, well, there's no way I can do that here. You know, if you want to find another studio, I'm happy to go do it somewhere else. And we talked about that for a while, but it never really came to pass. Now, were you working in other studios at this time? Or were, were you strictly, you know, all of these records being done down in that basement studio? Well, I, I, I primarily worked in the, in the basement uh, as, as much as possible, I would say. Um, you know, there were there were always uh, instances, let's, let's say Dostanin, where where they felt that you know maybe going into a, a bigger, better equipped studio might get them something more. So you know, I did that as well. But I would say, you know, probably ninety five percent of the stuff at that time was done in Fun uh, City. From a budgetary standpoint, if you recall, would you have been dealing directly with the artists, or was SST calling you with you know? This is what we can do. Um, I, I was dealing primarily with the artist yeah. at that point um, because mo- most of it was, you know, I mean, even Dinosaur Jr. was basically through Sonic Youth or, you know, Glenn Bronco was also a source of a lot of um, recording work because uh, he had started Neutral Records and I guess he was sending a lot of the people to me to uh, work with. Right. Do you recall the any of the sessions at all for Lee Ronaldo's From Here to Infinity? Um. I recall some of that. Yes, absolutely. Um, I was uh, Lee and I still still talk a lot, um, more so I guess than any anybody else in Sonic Youth at this point. But uh, we we had a, an affinity that went back, I guess, before he even joined uh, Sonic Youth. I, he he had actually I had asked him to join Glorious Strangers at some point. Oh, really? And yeah, and, and you know it almost came together, but for whatever reason it didn't. Um, uh, so as far as the, those sessions, um, the, the primary thing I remember was the, the looping technique, because after we had done the vinyl, I guess, which, which had locked loops at the end of the song so that they would just keep repeating, mm-hmm. um, we had to make a, a, a version for a cassette release. <laughs> and of course, you couldn't do that, that technique, so we would, we would actually create the loop and then decide how long it should go right. on the cassette before the next song came. So were you like mastering the cassette release off of the vinyl, like allowing the vinyl to loop and then capturing it that way? I believe we used the master tapes and just, just created loops um, probably with a, uh, a, a digital device right. at the end. Uh, although I was you know, primarily an analog guy, I was you know, interested also in keyboards and things. Right. After, after certainly after Glorious Strangers, I became, you know, 
kind of obsessed with keyboards more than anything. Um, so I had some early samplers and, and uh, delay lines and things. Uh, and in fact, the, one of the um, guitar solos on You're Living All Over Me, I was trying to erase uh, the noise in front of the, the actual beginning of the solo. Mm-hmm. And by mistake, ended up cutting out like the first half a measure of the solo and uh, tried to figure out how to fix that. And I did it actually by sampling a part later on and then putting it in. (laughs) (laughs) Early Pro Tools. (laughs) Early Pro Tools. Yeah. All right. What about the Chaconi Youth record? Well, and there, the sampler kind of leads into that because uh, I had this Emacs and uh, everyone seemed quite fascinated with the, you know, that ability to sample 12 seconds of sound and loop it or what, you know. So that, that's how the Chicone uh, record pretty much came about. You know, the, Sonic Youth was there, they saw the thing, and then they started, you know, well, let's sample this and let's sample that. <laughs> right. Which leads us into the, the Master Dick uh, record for Sonic Youth. Some of that... I don't believe that song Master Dick was recorded with you, but some of it, like, for example, the Ramones cover Beat on the Brat was recorded. Do you have any idea what session that would have been recorded during? My recollection of that was that they came in to do Beat on the Brat and one of the things kind of as a one-off. I don't know if it was for a single or whatever, and then later it got put on that record. I believe that record is kind of a compilation of a bunch of different things that they recorded in different places. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. How much longer were you were you recording bands down there? Did you at some point move out to a you know a dedicated space, or did you stay down there for for quite a while? Um, I stayed down there. You know, I mean, rents rents in New York were you know escalating rapidly during much of that time. Um, I remember recording a record for a uh, a charity. And there, there was there was like a, a millionaires who who was basically behind the whole thing. And when she came down to the studio, she said, "Well, we have to find you a better space." <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I always liked the the rough edge quality of it, and I I loved the sound in, in space because it was all um, you know the building was was constructed in 1900, and the basement was basically you know four feet of stone in every direction, and a brick lattice ceiling that was you know almost like a subway situation with the, the curves and everything right so it, it became a really it, you know it was a very interesting space there were very little parallel uh, lines in it and uh you know the, the bands always seemed quite pleased with what was coming out there um especially as i upgraded went to 16 track and you know eventually 24 track so um I pretty much kept that as the base of operations. As far as the setup of the space goes, what was that like? Did you have like a vocal booth, for example, or did you use baffles to to separate the the band? Well, the band itself um, was basically um, live in the room, and again, because the way the room was, it wasn't square. I mean, there were some areas that were deeper and wider and some areas that were narrower mm-hmm. um and after a few years of experimenting moving the drums all over and trying to figure out what the best arrangement was um 
I pretty much came up with an arrangement where it's basically everything stayed set up so that the, the drums were towards the back and then the bass was there and then the guitars were on the other side. And, uh, you know, I worked out a really good headphone system so that everyone could actually hear when they were playing the room at the same time. It, I guess that's how much isolation was in that room that a lot of times, you know, the drummer couldn't even hear what the guitarist was doing on the other side of the room. Well, as you said, obviously a lot of other artists liked the sounds you were getting. You ended up working with who's who of indie rock in the in the late 80s, Pussy Galore, Unsane, Helmet, Yola Tango. Any, yep. any standout sessions for you? Like, was there anything you were recording where you just knew it was going to be, you know, you were you were doing something special? Well, um, you know, once again, I mean, I'm always of the mind, you know, people would record a track and walk into the uh, control room, which which was separated from the playing room, and say, well, what did you think of that kick? And I, I would always answer the same way. I would say, well, I'll try in a year. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, I mean, I could tell when things were off, right. but, you know, what the ultimate, you know, result of how a track's going to stand up over time, that, that takes the time, I think, to, to really get that feel. Yeah. That said, you know, someone, someone like Helmet was already pretty popular um, at the clubs, you know, and I, I was I, I would usually see the bands at, at a club or whatever before I'd record them. So, I, you know, I, I always liked recording bands that had already kind of figured out what they wanted to do and, and had it kind of more together than not, you know, because I always felt that, uh, you know, even as a producer, I, I wasn't really into writing music for them or, you know, super arranging things. Um, I really preferred it when people had already meshed a lot of that out. So, um, you know, when I when I recorded the, the, the first Helmet record, um, it was obviously, you know, pretty hard-hitting and uh, immediate. And so I had good feelings about that. I mean, I have to say, of, of all the artists I worked with, the, the only one that I, I was pretty certain with was going to be special was Dinosaur Jr. because uh, I had been on a panel at CMJ or something and uh, was sitting there with a big crowd of, of people. And when they said, uh, he was in tears and he's worked with uh, Sonic Youth and Dinosaur Jr. And once the Dinosaur Jr. was out, there was like this <gasps> kind of hush <laughs> gasp in the audience. So, I mean, to me, that told me that uh, Jay was on to something special. And speaking of Helmet, you ended up working with Paige Hamilton doing some production mm -hmm. work later on. Mm -hmm. What kind of things were you, you two working on? Well, um, I mean, Paige was always working on his music. And uh, I, I guess because I was involved in, the, in those early Helmet records, uh, you know, he, he had a bunch of faith in me, which record companies didn't always share. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. That's a, that's another whole story, I guess. But uh, you know, I think he liked working with me, and and was always happy with what, what you know I would get out of it. So, was there stuff that got away where you know maybe the artist wanted to to work with you, but the the label said no? Well, I, I think by the third Helmet record, I mean they, they, they basically said, "Well, Paige, you're going to work with somebody else. You know, we don't want you working with Warden this time." Um, which is kind of surprising after the success of, you know, meantime, but, mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, it's just one of the things about the record industry that, you know, 
I came to realize is that, you know, it's really about your reputation. Uh, and of course, you know, meantime, really cemented me in the minds of a lot of, uh, the record industry because all of a sudden it was not just bands showing up saying, Hey, Wharton, can you record us? But, you know, managers and labels calling me up saying, well, we're going to fly you to London. You have to see this. Right. <laughs> and it, it's just a whole, it's a very different kind of feeling. You know, I, I, I can't say aside from the money involved that it was any better. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, I always preferred working with the bands and getting the immediate feedback of whether they liked it or not, because if they, they liked it and I liked it, then to me, that was, that was gold, you know? Right. Um, once you work with a record company, it's not only the band, but then the manager and A and R people, and then the, the various layers of people who would, you know, sift through it and and have an opinion. And while all this is going on, you're also chipping away at your own music. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think your Brighter Than Life record that came out in '96, you had been recording for half a decade. Well, you know, I I never stopped playing music. Um, Although I pretty much stopped playing out, I, I pretty much stopped with the idea of putting together a band. So I was doing a lot of recording um, on my own. Usually at night, people people would leave, and I'd sit down there and, and work on something or other. And it was, I guess, around the time that Brighter Than Life came out in '96, when I was kind of in that you know moment of crisis. I guess is the only way to define it, where I'm like. You know, it's like, it's fun doing all this recording, and I'm certainly making a lot of money, you know, um, but I'm kind of burnt out on it, and the, the whole reason I got into this was to, pl- you know, play my music and to, to work on my music, and now I'm, I'm doing less and less of that. Right. So I kind of made up my mind at that point to, to kind of shift back towards, um, you know, working more on my own stuff, okay. and that kind of led to the ensemble and getting people to play it out and all that, so... Yeah, tell me about Fletcher Buckley. Uh, an amazing saxophone player and uh, quite the fun human being as well. So uh, Fletcher and I, uh, again, I, I hooked up with Fletcher, I guess, at some point, probably in the early 80s, because I was trying to put some saxophone in some Glorious Strangers stuff. Mm. So Fletcher and I hooked up, and we just kind of always you know, stayed in touch. So when the ensemble started, you know, my original concept was just instrumental music, but I, I wanted to have that kind of uh, saxophone voice involved, and uh, it became Fletcher. Okay. And for people who haven't heard it, when you say instrumental music, how how do you describe it? Well, I... I, I uh, there was a writer who, who used a term that, that I like to use, and they called it symphonic surf music. <laughs> I like that too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's and it really is quite apt for, for what I was trying to do. You know, I mean, I've always been interested in, in classical music from way, way back. And kind of the whole experience with theoretical girls was in a way uh, reinforced a lot of that because the, that was where Jeff Long, you know, that was his background. And, you know, then, of course, Glenn also kind of adopted that in, in, in his uh, guitar symphonies and things. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's all kind of a logical path. Um, you know, 
and and mine I guess is a little more of the surfy thing because of, of being a drummer and just liking that that kind of you know beat. Right. <laughs> the guitars are very la- layered on the recordings. What is the the most guitarists you've had on stage for a performance? Um, the most guitarists was uh, the, for a while I had uh, five guitars uh, and two bass players. And of course, Saxon drums. So that was the that was the largest uh, version of the ensemble. Now, just before the pandemic hit, um, one of my guitarists had had um, you know opted out, and I actually had um, three guitarists in to, to play. And I kind of like the sound of having six guitars, <laughs> but. Um, so far, n- nothing has, has reached the light of day as far as that goes. And we'll okay. just have to see, I guess, where it all ends up. But, you know, I mean, the only problem with, with putting a group like that together is that, uh, you know, touring becomes basically a, a non-entity. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, I mean, it's not bad because New York City, well, I would say New York City has plenty of venues to, to go out and play. You know what's going to happen when all all is said and done is is another thing entirely. But um, so it really was possible to kind of tour and not never leave the uh, New York metropolitan area. <laughs> yeah, you mean as far as who survives the the pandemic? Yeah, well, you know, I I mean I, I have to think that uh, you know eighty percent of those clubs are are not going to survive because. Yeah. They were they were not you know generating big business anyway for sure, and you know the rents have probably closed most of the places already. Okay, so if people listening to this have never heard the Wharton Tears Ensemble, where is a good place to start? Where would you point them? Well, they could go to WhartonTears dot com and uh, preview a, a lot of music there. Uh, there's there's things on YouTube. You have you a Bandcamp as well. Through. Yep, Bandcamp as well. So, you know, there's a number of avenues to find out more about it. Um, but what's a good record to start with? Well, um, I know I have to say that they're they're all pretty uh, pretty good. Um, the, the latest uh, vinyl that we released was uh, Kaboom, which uh, came out right before the pandemic. <laughs> right. And you know that that was the most current version of the band, and also included a bunch of things from the others that were basically uh, digital-only releases because mm-hmm. I tried to get the, the best-sounding material uh, on the record to, right. to you know take advantage of the vinyl. The Kaboom record, so that's new material and some older stuff, or it's it's all just older yes. stuff? No, it, there, there, was, uh, there were new tracks recorded specifically for that and, and then a few tracks that uh, came off of the digital releases gotcha. that, previous to that. Any chance we'll ever hear some of the other stuff, maybe on your band camp, like Glorious Strangers? Well, um, you know, I'm I'm committed <laughs> to to getting my music up there and out there as much as possible, and uh, you know that that includes a lot of the piano music that I've, I've written for, for solo piano, which uh, if they go to wardentears.com, you can certainly find all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I believe that that's on Bandcamp as well. And uh, there's some things on clips on YouTube as well. Um, and also, uh, 
you know, super duper looper, which is basically a, um, not, not unlike from, from here to infinity right? <laughs> in terms of uh, using loops and things to, to generate, uh, sound collages. There was a, um, a ensemble I put together called Aurora 23. that was basically all keyboards. So, you know, I, I would certainly encourage people to, to, to look through all of it. I mean, it's, 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 it's kind of wildly different in the way that, you know, the A&R person would have said, what the hell are you doing? For him? Right. <laughs> you can't possibly be that diverse and, and, and build an image in people's minds. But um, I've always been a big fan of a lot of different kinds of music. And I, I, I always attributed that to, to, you know, helping in my production skills, because it's, it's very rare that I could come across a band where I couldn't find a hook in there that, you know, was something that I would enjoy and, and, and like, you know. Right. What else have you been doing in the last, say, 10 years? Are you you're still doing engineering and production work? Um, I have been, um, although I certainly have not been a totally active seeker of it. Um, it, it, it still kind of surprises me when, uh, you know, people contact me and say, oh, we've been looking for you. <laughs> You know, what do you think of this? And I, I recently did a record for a band in uh, Thailand. Okay. Um, where they basically just sent tracks and had me mix them. Um, I was also working with a, a French uh, metal band um, of women. So, you know, things things are always ongoing. Um, and quite honestly, I, I, I'm, I'm more than happy these days to just be working on my own uh, music, you know. Mm-hmm. I've been working on some symphonies and, uh, again, the piano music and, even you know, ensemble tracks as well. So eventually I will get a lot of it up there and then, you know, hopefully it'll, it'll give a very nice, broad, organized catalog for people to sift through. <laughs> right. Before Sonic Youth broke up, you were, you were working with them a little bit in their, in their private studio. Yes. Well, I helped, uh, I helped wire their studio up yeah. and, uh, did the a thousand leaves record there, which was, uh, you know, a, gr- a great experience. I mean, it, it, the only, I mean, it was it basically took about a year to do that record because they were luxuriating in the fact that they no longer had to pay studio bills. Right. <laughs> So it, it became a very, you know, three hour a day kind of wall meet and, and we'll play some stuff and we'll see where it goes. And, uh, you know, it was all on tape, which, which I always liked. And, uh, there was uh, a ton of editing involved because, uh, sometimes I refer somewhat cynically to that record as a thousand edits. <laughs> but, um, when I listen to it, it's, it's kind of interesting that because, you know, even the more outlandish edits there all seem to work on some level. Right. All right. So perhaps if there was no pandemic happening right now, this would already be the case. But once the pandemic is under, you know, under control, uh, will we be seeing some shows with the Wharton Tears Ensemble and and some new music perhaps? Well, I I hope the the shows will follow. Um, I know there will be new, new music. I'm working on a bunch of stuff right now, so I would say that we'll be out within six months. 
And yeah, I mean, I'm I'm quite hopeful to go back to to playing again. So we just have, have to kind of see how it shakes out and, and what venues are left. Right. <laughs> it was kind of interesting today. I was just watching a story on 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 the uh, musicians from the Met, and they're basically they kind of like said, okay, well, we'll be back <laughs> in a year and a half or something, and now you're on your own, and you know, a lot of them are just going around playing on the streets of New York, trying to, to just keep it alive and, and, and keep, you know, some spare change coming in, I guess. I mean, I, right. I kind of felt bad. Um, although, you know, I am, I am working on some symphonic music, so it would be kind of interesting to, to get a few groups of those people together to play it. Yeah. You know, maybe, maybe that's where it's going. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We'll watch for that stuff, Wharton. Thank you for being on the podcast today. I really appreciated talking to you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. All right. Super cool to have Wharton on. I'm always amazed how those guys are are so humble too, right? Yeah. Like, you know, some of that stuff that Wharton was involved in just was revolutionary and changed the American underground music scene that we still can't stop talking about. It's super huge to have him on the show. So that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, I think the thing with a lot of these guys and gals is they didn't know at the time what they were doing, yeah. you know, that this was going to have the legacy that it's had. Yeah. Some of it's still really timeless. Like it doesn't sound dated the way it was recorded. They really avoided some of those trappings that arguably some of the major label studios got into in the 80s and 90s. And uh, it makes that music sound dated. None of the stuff that Wharton does sounds dated. Yeah. And the thing, like, if you think back as well to what we've heard from folks on the show about Wharton is just how open he was to anyone who was coming in. I think the Doss Domin guys in particular were saying just how cool he was, right? Yeah. And, like, open to something that was completely new, something that was completely loud, just like loud and capturing it on tape. And it, we're very lucky that it, it made it there and that Wharton was around to do that. That helmet record, a meantime and specifically was a huge, it had a huge impact at the time. Oh yeah. On the, yeah. on the sound the so that bands were going for. Yeah. The sound of the, the snare sound, right? Yeah. In particular. Yeah, the uh, the ultra precision of the instruments being able to capture that and then the way that it was mixed and mastered to make it so um, so precise, a very so dry production, dry for yep. sure. Yeah, yep. um, I've I've heard it said about that era of helmet where they really sh demonstrated how it's important like when to stop when they're playing. Cause some of those riffs are so chuggy and they create like some really suddenness and Wharton definitely captured that on meantime for sure. I still listen to that record. Oh, like yeah, me too. If, if you want to get pumped by some tunes by helmet, meantime is your answer. Yeah, no, I listen to it all the time for sure. Uh, a few things I picked out. There's this documentary blank city, which I haven't seen. So that's on my list. I watched the trailer for it on YouTube and it looks pretty cool. It's not just about like the no wave musicians, but it's also about 
kind of the uh, the film films that were coming out of that scene. Oh yeah, right. Yeah, like no wave cinema. It looks really cool. There's a, another no wave documentary which I have seen, which is really good. I think it's called Kill Your Idols. Actually, it's been a while. You, that, that might yeah, be you one. Yeah, I've got that one. That's yeah. a good one. Uh, his music, Ryan, is really worth checking out, especially. You, I think, would really like the Wharton Tears Ensemble. His description of it is very apt, the symphonic surf music. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds cool. I had not heard of that, and I'm going to check it out. Yeah. And then my favorite part of the interview is Phil Leopold von Trapp gets some love. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was impressed. You remembered the name so well. I was like, yes, yes. <laughs> I'm sure Wharton is thinking of that eight string bass too, right? Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's awesome. Right on. You want to talk about these tracks? Yeah, man. History lesson part two. So I've got some space, man, but it's not even really worth mentioning because this, this record, I think all it says that's maybe worth mentioning is that it has some select sonic slabs and that this record smokes, but I actually would disagree. This is like one of my least favorite <laughs> records that we've covered on the show in all 155 episodes. <laughs> and thank God there's a Ramones cover on it because I could I could do without all of it except for the Ramones cover. Uh, even that sucks. I, I, I think I actually wrote down here in my notes, this is the worst thing we've covered in all 155 episodes yeah it might be and i was i was gonna ask you like you know we've had a few challenging releases but we're still able to find something redeeming whether it's the boldness the fact that this artistic statement was captured at the time the fact that it was you know part of a particular artist's over all story um they're such a prolific artist and this was one era, you know, and we're, we're able to talk about it that way, but I could really do without this record altogether. I love Sonic Youth, man, but that doesn't mean that they don't put out crap sometimes. Like you don't, <laughs> you don't have to, it doesn't make you any less of a fan by admitting it. Oh yeah. We were just talking about Zappa, right? And there is some stuff in the 80s that I really don't go back to that much, to be yeah. honest, you know? Yeah. All right, well, let's go through these tracks. Master Dick is, of course, the title track, and it's the A-side this of this 12-inch single. Uh, as mentioned, it was done at Sear Sound during the Sister Sessions. Additional recording and mixing done at Before Christ Studios, Brooklyn, uh, New York, by Martin B.C. Starts Sonic Youth enough with some noisy guitars, I actually, I guess Lee kind of confirms that it's Jay Mascus. I kind of just assumed that that was bullshit, that it's not Jay Mascus. That it was Jay on there? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It doesn't really sound it, like him. Yeah, I don't know. Even that doesn't save it. Actually, the best part about this track for me is the fact that they sampled Conky from Pee Wee's Playhouse. Other than that, <laughs> other than that, there ain't nothing, even if Jay's on it for me. I missed the, missed the Conky stuff. Uh, the first kiss sample comes in after about a minute and it's from the song strutter. She's looking good, uh, off their first record. Then there's like some cartoon samples. That must be quirky. Maybe, uh, Kurt, uh, Thurston's going chit, 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 Coney. 
uh, then a more obvious Kiss sample, the I know from Strutter again, and Thurston mumbles the classic line, Gene Simmons is an ugly mother. I read that it supposedly contains a sample of the Stones ain't too proud to beg, but I couldn't hear that. Lots of classic 808 drum machine sounds. Uh, the little riff at the end, I knew I'd heard it somewhere before, and then I stumbled on Mark Prindle's site, and he points out that this is a sample from a John Cougar Mellencamp song, the little riff at the end. I couldn't, oh. pla- I couldn't place what song, though. Hmm. Uh, there's some bells at the end, apparently sampled by Lee. I actually prefer the mix with Steve playing drums on that's on the sister CD. There's actually a bass line in it, although it's played on a guitar, and the song just has some more structure to it. It still sucks, but it's better than this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, th- there goes our chance of getting Sonic Youth back on the show. Yeah, well... I'm not going to sugarcoat it to please anybody. This is just not good. Side two, beat on the brat. Uh, As if anybody from Sonic Youth is actually going to listen to this anyways. Uh, This one's engineered by Wharton. Pretty straight version of the Ramones song. Thurston doing a kind of a cheeky Joey impression. Uh, On some shows on that 87 tour, they would close the show with Loudmouth. I don't want to walk around with you today. Your love tomorrow, the world. And then this song, Hmm. the best beat on the brat cover is of course done by Hanson brothers. Oh, close. No means no. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. Under the influence of the Jesus and Mary chain live on Swiss radio, July 87, Uh, a man, presumably the interviewer asks a question in like Swiss German or whatever. And then a female translator repeats the question, which is something to the effect of, do you think you're playing in the same style as the Jesus and Mary chain? Then we cut to some feedback at what sounds like a sound check. And someone who sounds like Lee yells out, no, not at all. These are just my assumptions about what this is. I don't know a lot of this. Then we go. That's what it sounds like though. Yeah, that's fair. Then we go to the next track, Ticket to Ride, Master Dick version, and Introducing the Stars. Uh, recorded on Geneva Radio, June 18th, 1987. Uh, it starts with Thurston saying, We really suck tonight, ladies and gentlemen. This song is called Dickweed Part 8. <laughs> After which he, la- he launches into, I assume, an impromptu version of the Beatles song, Ticket to Ride, if you can call it that. It's basically him screaming the lyrics. Uh, Then he goes back into the Master Dick rap. The one, two, three, four, whatever. Something, something, titty. (laughs) I know every nook and cranny in New York City. Uh, Which I'm assuming is the Master Dick version listed in the song title. Then he announces the song Pipeline, a track off his sister which I assume is the introducing the stars part of the title, because then he starts announcing guests that are obviously not coming out onto stage, like Sun Ra, Max Roach, Lee shouts Sonny Chirac, uh, George Benson. Then Lee, uh, someone who I think is Lee says, let's not do it too fast, Steve-O, and you can hear him counting in Pipeline. The live mix for this is done by Terry Pearson, their longtime tour tech. 
Thurston to me sounds an awful lot like that annoying Matt Carlson from Earth Dies Burning character on some of those Zoogs, Zoogs records. <laughs> what did he call Zoogs Rift or something? Zoogs Rift or whatever. Yeah, Zoogs Rift, man. Yeah. All right, then back track B2B. Ringo, He's on Fire, Florida Oil Drums, Westminster Chimes. If you notice on the LP label, Ryan, also, it says, like, this track, for example, is 5 minutes and 30 seconds long, which it thankfully is not. It's only a minute and a half, which is already too long. You got... (laughs) (laughs) It starts with Thurston screaming over top of Steve's drumming and a few samples about Ringo Starr. Uh, Then Thurston starts screaming about the funky drummer, and he yells, He's on fire. So there's that part of the song. I'm assuming the Florida oil drums are a field recording of someone hitting oil drums in like a big echoey building. Then the Westminster chimes are what sounds like one of those big ass clocks that your grandma had, you know, with the chimes at noon or whatever. Oh yeah. Bing bong, bing bong, bong, bing, bing bong. Also known as uh, Clock Strikes 12 by Cheap Trick. Okay, then we've got track three, Chinese Jam. Just over a minute again, thankfully, because the label says six minutes, 44 seconds. Uh, it's what sounds like a tape recorder recording of Thurston and Lee playing together somewhere, maybe backstage or something. It's got a bit of an oriental music vibe to it. Then track B2D, <laughs> Vibrato, Guitar Lick, Funky Fresh. Listed as 902 on the LP label, thankfully only three minutes. It's a solo guitar played like just a chord strumming through a trem pedal, not a vibrato. And it's pitch modulated a little bit, maybe with a four track. The part of the song called Guitar Lick is just someone playing a riff on an acoustic guitar with a lot of tape hiss. And then the funky fresh part is Thurston just going, shit is funky fresh and like beatboxing. (laughs) <laughs> how, how am I doing so far? I can't believe your dedication to the show to provide such a thorough description. <laughs> Track B2E, Our Backyard. Apparently one of Lee's favorite songs of this era of the band or whatever he said in those liners. It's an abstract noise piece. Uh, two and a half minutes long, not the 11 minutes and eight seconds listed on the LP, thankfully. At this point, I'm totally over this EP and I just want it to be over. There's some birds <laughs> chirping and you can, <laughs> you can hear someone hammering some nails, I'm assuming in someone's backyard. And then track B3 is just called Traffic and it's just five seconds of static. The entire thing is 19 minutes and 9 seconds long, the entire EP. Again, I wrote here, I love Sonic Youth, but I never want to hear this EP again. Stevie Chick in his book wrote, These B-sides caught Sonic Youth at their most impish and self-indulgent. Here's from MarkPrindle.com. Any record with a Ramones cover deserves a 6, even if it's as stupid and as unnecessary as this one. The liner notes are hilarious. A Ben Weasel maximum rock and roll diatribe that refers to Sonic Youth as the yes of the 90s, as opposed, one assumes, to the actual yes of the 90s, 
who presumably were more like Painted Willie. Some of the live rantings on side two are funny as well. For once, Thurston sounds embarrassed and self-deprecating instead of completely in love with himself. Ticket to Ride alone is probably worth the price of the record. Well, maybe not, but the Ramones cover is. Possibly better than the original. Have to disagree on that one. Oh, yeah. Give me a break. Overall could be better, but still pretty fun. And too short to get really boring. Wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Probably the best thing about this is the Ben Weasel article printed on the inside. The article's good, but I think the uh the photo of the band is also very iconic right Mm -hmm. yeah uh yeah it's them goofing around in front of some spray painted spirals on a wall that you know go kind of onto the floor giving a cool 3d effect uh the typical ben weasel rant from november 1987 issue of mrr he's shitting on kind of bands of the era for abandoning punk for what he calls total bullshit music. He goes, hell yes, I'll name names. I'm talking about Green River, Husker Du, Replacements, REM, and Sonic Youth. My One of the best parts is, now let's take a somewhat objective look at the labels that dish out, that dish this horseshit out. SST. <laughs> <laughs> SST, what the fuck? When was the last time this grandpa-assed label put out a good record? <laughs> It's like, in order to get on SST, you have to, one, be really boring and pretentious, two, hate hardcore, and three, look like my dad. (laughs) (laughs) It just goes on from there. You can find it on the web, and it's definitely worth reading, and it's it's an entirety. It came with a sticker on the front cover, a warning sticker on the shrink wrap. Warning, not as good as Atomizer, so don't get your hopes up, cheese. Uh, which is apparently the same sticker that Big Black put on their own EP Headache from 1987. The front cover says pay no more than 215 euros, $2.15, which was, I think, Paul Smith's compromise to the band. He talks a lot in the interview in Stevie Chick's book about kind of insisting that this would be a budget-priced EP if they mm-hmm. were going to make him put it out against his wishes. It's hard to think of a band being able to make a rubber record label put something out these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can see why he would be concerned about releasing this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It definitely, like, if it was people's first introduction to the band and they didn't get it, it could take several years for the listener to retry listening to Sonic Youth. Yeah, plus if you paid more than $2.15, you'd feel super ripped off, I think. Yeah, well, this is two fifteen Euro- European, right? Yeah. So that's that's almost five bucks Canadian. Yeah. What do you think the front and back is? Is that like just white noise off a TV or something? Yeah, I don't know. It has like a off-center picture frame going on there, so I, I don't know. It could just be some. Like, it doesn't strike me as a photograph. It strikes me as some sort of textured black and white art that someone made, but I could be wrong. All right. Well, I hate to go on about it, but I I agree with Paul Smith. This record is pointless. I think there's dead wax, though. Oh, yeah. There's dead wax. 
Let's hit that. Maybe that's Shall we? maybe that okay. salvages things. All right. So side A says Chicone Death Rock Dream Tinkle. So not yet. Hasn't saved it yet. And side B says Humpy Pumpy Psychoacoustic Frenzy. All right. Well, I'm sorry if uh, you like this record. Let us know if we're <laughs> we're missing something. I want to hear people's opinion on this one. Yeah, I think I think there are a few brief moments, but that's not enough to save it, unfortunately. Yeah. And I think what makes it harder for Sonic Youth is because they have so many. You know, and, and I, I'm always a bit conflicted about Sonic Youth. They have so many great records and such great music out there. But then they're also so prolific that, and they can be really challenging to listen to. So, you know, when there's so much other really great Sonic Youth, why are you going to listen to this one on a regular basis or at all, yeah. right? Well, hey, man, like, let's look at the series of EPs they did called uh, what were they called? They released them on Sonic Youth Records, a series of P EPs towards the end of their... their oh, run. yeah, like the that red one, the green one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. I don't love all of those, but I appreciate all of them. There, I can understand why they released all of those. This did not need to come out. Yeah. Is this... So you were pretty harsh on the Star, Star Power 12-inch. Is this? <laughs> is this less... Less worthy than Star Power? Well, I mean, like, I don't know. How necessary was Little Fury things? Oh, that was necessary because of the killer artwork. Okay. And the cover, man. Yeah. Show me the show me the way. Yeah. Well. Come on, dude. I don't know, man. Let's not shit ourselves. SST did some cashing in on some stuff. Yeah. Like, we're going to get into a zillion HR 12-inch EPs next year. And Brian Ritchie, twelve-inch EPs. Yeah, they probably could have gotten away with one of those nuclear war Brian Ritchie twelve inches instead of two, right? Yeah, you're gonna have to pick the ballot result, Ryan. <laughs> ballot result. It's got to be "Beat on the Brat." It's the most listenable tune, and it's the Ramones. So, uh, "Beat on the Brat" for me, right? Does it have to be? Well, what are you going to pick then? I would pick Our Backyard because it's Lee's favorite and it's only two and a half minutes. Okay. Fine. I don't want to ever hear that beat on the Brat cover ever again either. Okay. Well, let's go with that one. I'm good. I'm good either way. Like Sonic Youth is a Brant band. We both like them, <laughs> but they're a Brant band. Maybe they're band. not. Maybe they're not. Well, they're not. I mean, you like them more than I do. I Look, don't get me wrong. I like them, but you love them. It's just like Dinosaur Jr. You like them. I love them. Yeah. I don't know. Usually when I love a band, I can find something to like on every release, even if I know it's not their best work. But I just really don't like this. Yeah. But that's maybe the point, because you have such high expectations, even when, it's, even when it's difficult to listen to or like those Sonic Youth label like that Sonic Youth label EP series where you can still appreciate it. This just kind of seems like a bit of an inside joke and, you know, 
it didn't need to take up space on your shelf. Yeah. I'm happy we had Wharton on though. So to salvage the, the episode for sure. No doubt. Yeah. Very cool. Whew. Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brant, we're going to get into uh, another one of your faves, actually. It's SST-156, the DC-3 Des Kadena Trio album, Vita. Oh, I need that to scrub my brain right now, man. (laughs) (laughs) You've got a fever and the only cure is some Vita. That's right. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at MoJackPod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.